Hi, I'm Renata Sago, and this is Life After Pulse from WMFE. It's been one year since 49 people were killed and more than 50 injured after a gunman opened fire at the Pulse nightclub in Orlando. I don't think you can have that level of hatred and, and, and hanging around a bar. And There's got to be something conflicting there to me. He may have had a mental illness when uh, perhaps undiagnosed. Unfortunately, the government and, and the public are often looking for a very simple explanation for what is actually a very complicated thing. This episode is about the motives of the man behind the shooting, Omar Mateen. Sunday, June 12, 2016. Emergency 911, this is Dr. Lawrence being recorded. I want to let you know I'm in Orlando, and I did the shooting. What's your name? My name is, I pledge of allegiance to Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi of the Islamic State. Okay. What's your name? I pledge my allegiance to Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi Hasidullah on behalf of the Islamic State. Where are you at? In Orlando. Where in Orlando? Just hours after that call, news unfolded quickly about this voice. Well, here's that breaking news update that we promised you just moments ago. Pulse nightclub shooter now identified as Omar Mateen of St. Lucie County, Florida. So not shooter approaching emerging of a man in conflict with himself, a twice-married father who visited gay bars and dating sites. Orlando massacre madman Omar Mateen working as a security guard. 29-year-old Omar Mateen, a self-proclaimed ISIS supporter, armed with a 223 caliber his father claimed he wasn't motivated by religion, but was angry after witnessing a gay couple in Amar Mateen has become a political statement, a receptacle for unanswered questions, the object of social commentary on terrorism, homophobia, mental illness, and scorned love. Just ask people. Years ago, there weren't shootings all the time. I think it's sort of a, sort of a self-centered society that's if I feel slighted or I feel like my religion's better than yours, then it gives me the license to act out. There's a difference between what somebody believes and what they see in the world. They get frustrated internally and try to take that out, you know, on others. Maybe he had a phobia against gay people. Maybe he wanted to get back at someone specifically. Probably a lot of frustration um, in that man's life. Um, you know, maybe he wasn't happy. I think, I believe he was married, right? But maybe he wasn't happy in the marriage. Maybe, you know, the certain religious rules he were, probably you know, holding himself him back from expressing himself. couldn't come out and to see people so free and um, happy and aware of themselves, it probably made him very angry. Islam or whatever it is, uh, people hate Americans. So I feel, you know, they hate gay people. And that was his motive. That's the way them people are. I, I don't think we'll ever truly be able to know why. Um, and no, I, I don't think it's, it's important to understand why, because what difference does that make?
Mary Ellen O'Toole has spent her whole career trying to understand what difference that can make. She's a former FBI agent who worked in the agency's behavioral analysis unit. In the 1990s, she began studying mass shootings and the minds behind them. I'm talking the Columbine High School massacre, the 2002 Olympic bombings, and the Zodiac killer murders. To lay the groundwork for understanding Mateen, Talia Blake sat down with O'Toole to hear some takeaways from other minds that have committed large-scale violent crimes. What are the benefits to understanding how people who commit large-scale violent crimes think? Well, the benefits are um, a couple of things. Obviously, to be able to um, hopefully prevent a crime like this from happening again in the future, but It's also important to be able to understand how this behavior evolves and how this kind of thinking um, develops over time and and to understand, develop a better understanding of the motivations. And Dr. O'Toole, how does someone with no criminal history pull off a massacre? Well, what's so interesting is that many of our mass shooters um, have either no criminal history or a criminal history that is really insignificant. What's important in these cases is that the thinking about these crimes pre-exists the behavior. And the thinking takes months, if not years, to develop to get to the point where you're thinking in terms of killing other people because of your outlook and your perspective on the world. Have you ever seen a case like this in all of your years in the FBI? Well, yes, we've had other cases that that have some of the same behaviors and where the there's been a lot of planning involved in it and the person gets inside of the, the venue where they're going to do the shooting and they behave or they act in a very cool, calm, and collected manner and they kill um, multiple numbers of people, injuring um, a lot of people, and then at the end um, they, they die as a result of suicide or um, suicide by cops. So, yes, we, we've seen this kind of behavior before. And Dr. O'Toole, After the shooting occurred, in an interview you said, we're still not where we want to be when it comes to the prediction of violence. However, we're able to prevent violence if we know the warning signs. Can you elaborate on that? Stepping back um, uh, several steps, if we know the warning signs and if we can uh, teach other people what the warning signs are, even without predicting that, you know, John Smith, who lives at 703 South 14th, is going to be the next shooter. It may not be John Smith. It may be somebody that we didn't even know about, but if we know the warning signs. Then we can um, intervene um, in, in order to prevent it. Do you think we will be able to prevent something like this from happening again? 20 years ago, law enforcement was the ones, we were the ones that were looking for the warning signs. But we're not sitting in someone's living room or at their kitchen table. So we've now had to transfer that responsibility to members of the general public, to mothers and fathers and wives, to say, look, you live with this person every day. You need to know what these behaviors are, especially if there are, there's, there's already existing concerns that family members um, have about their loved ones. They're the ones that, that, that need to work with us and help us to identify those, those warning behaviors that really occur behind closed doors, and we would never see them. The most immediate indicator, for the public at least, of Mateen's possible motive is a series of phone calls released by the Orlando Police Department. They're between him and a man named Andy, a hostage negotiator. 
tell me where you are right now so I can get you some help? No, because you, you have to tell America to stop bombing Syria and Iraq. They're killing a lot of innocent people. So what, what am I to do here when pe my people are getting killed over there? You get what I'm saying? I, I do. I completely get what you're saying. What I'm trying to do is prevent anybody else from getting in. They need to stop the U.S. airstrikes. They need to stop the U.S. airstrikes, okay? I understand they that. They need to stop the U.S. airstrikes. You have to tell the U.S. government to stop bombing. They're killing too many children. They're killing too many women. Okay? I understand that. But here's, here's, here's why I'm here right now. I'm with the Orlando police. Can you tell me what you know about what's going on tonight? What are, what's going on yeah. is that I feel the pain of the people getting killed in Syria and Iraq and all over the Muslim America. He continues. My homeboy, Tamerlan Sarnayev, did his thing on the Boston Marathon. My homeboy, Munir Abu Salman, did his thing. Okay? So now it's my turn. Okay? Mateen asks Andy if he knew that it was the holy month of Ramadan, a time of fasting and prayer. He said he'd done both the whole day. I, I understand that. Okay, what I'm trying to do is make sure that you and no one else suffers any further injury. Okay? Ramadan, Islam, terrorism on U.S. soil. That became the narrative of Mateen's motives in the hours, days, and weeks after the shooting, from lawmakers, media, and average Janes and Joes. Here's then-FBI Director James Comey at a press conference. There are strong indications of radicalization by this killer and of potential inspiration by foreign terrorist organizations. We are spending a tremendous amount of time, as you would imagine, trying to understand every moment of this killer's path to that terrible night in Orlando to understand his motives and to understand the details of his After 9-11, the mantra became, so if you see something, say something. And after Pulse, that mantra continued. Here's Florida Governor Rick Scott after the shooting. We have to think about how we're going to stop uh, ISIS, how we're going to stop the spread of radical Islam. Part of it is if you see something, you've got to say something. You've got to let law enforcement know. If you see anything happening in your neighborhood that you're that questions, call them. Uh, let them know. Gun victims' rights advocates called for a special session to discuss guns, how guns ended up in the hands of Mateen. At the state level, there were protests and a sit-in on the floor of Congress, but Republican lawmakers and gun rights advocates did not budge. Terrorism. Radical Islamic terrorism. During a campaign stop for his Senate race just one block from Pulse, Marco Rubio was confronted by a protester who'd lost friends during two mass shootings, including Pulse. You can hear protesters in the background. I'm a, a survivor of gun violence. I went to Virginia Tech. Mm -hmm. Like my, my classmates and professors were gunned down. And then here I am in Orlando, yeah. and this is happening. And I, I'm really angry at you because I don't feel like you're doing anything to support the queer Latinx and people of color that have been so devastated by this, the LGBTQ plus community. Right. Like, I need to know, what is your relationship with the NRA? Why are you talking to transphobes and homophobes like John Stumberger, who, who like, all of you have blood on your hands if you are not no. acting. I'm with that group outside. I'm being frank with you right now because you weren't there last week and I'm here now. Well, I can answer your you. question. Quite frankly, I respect all people. We have a disagreement probably on the definition of marriage. Your policies kill people. Well, but can I answer your, your question? Policies enable people well, that's, to be murdered. Yeah, that's an unfair thing for you to say. Us. You're not protecting us. What happened? We're going to be killed. We're going to be gunned down. 
Like, Sir, what happened in Pulse was a terrorist here. attack by This hand. politicization right. of Mateen's acts by the FBI and lawmakers as terror against the United States comes as no surprise to Michael German. When an incident happens, it's, it's like everybody's on pins and needles until they say whether he's Muslim or not. If he's Muslim, then all of a sudden, you know, the politicians are going out there saying, you know, we have to, we, we have to use extreme methods. German was a part of the FBI for 16 years. He was an agent. He went undercover among white supremacists and right-wing militants. These days, he's in New York behind a desk mostly. I had a chat with him about the terrorism angle. Heads up, the connection is a bit shaky at times. Mr. German, terror in Orlando became such a popular term in the hours after the shooting. It became a continuation of discourse that we've heard after 9-11 for events, tragedies involving Muslims. How do we explain that? What al-Qaeda was trying to accomplish when they attacked the United States was to, was to divide American, the American society and, and to, to convince uh, the government that Muslims were a threat and to convince Muslims that the U.S. government was a threat. How do we define terrorism in general terms? There's an old adage that uh, that one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. Terrorism is distinguished from other kinds of violent crime by its political nature. The, the idea that there is a political or social or ideological uh, justification or, or goal in mind when somebody commits that kind of violence. But because terrorism is political. Counterterrorism is often political as well. And in, in addition to uh, attempting to address the violence, there's an interest in, in addressing it in a very political way to discredit the ideas as well as, um, as prevent the violence. And sometimes it, what we've seen is there's more of an interest in suppressing the ideas than in actually stopping the violence. Okay, within the term terrorism, we hear there are different kinds. There are different kinds. There's the, the homegrown acts, and then there's a the kind of terrorism that Mateen had been associated with. Can we unpack the differences here? So you have an agency like the FBI, which is the primary agency responsible for uh, responding to, to terrorism and, and attempting to prevent terrorism in the United States. Um, they have a distinction between what they call domestic terrorism and international terrorism. Uh, but what is how those definitions actually work don't, don't reflect reality. So just as an example, three situations that are very similar. You had Omar Mateen, uh, uh, who had no connections to any international terrorist groups or domestic terrorist groups, really. and. Uh, you know, one day, for whatever reason, he picks up a gun and goes and, and kills a number of people, and that's a horrific act. Uh, Dylan Roof, another American, did a similar thing in Charleston, South Carolina. James Holmes in Colorado uh, did the same thing and shot up a, a people watching a movie in Aurora, Colorado. So those crimes are very similar in their methodology, but because Omar Mateen claimed ISIS as his inspiration, and Dylan Roof claimed white supremacy, and James Holmes claimed the Batman movie, the response is completely different. The response to Omar Mateen would be bombing a foreign country. Okay, so you're saying the difference has to do with ideology or politics. 
right? You know, what you have to understand is is every federal government agency is political. Of course they're political. <laughs> That's the definition of, of the type of power, government power that they wield, expecting that the FBI will somehow be completely apolitical is not just contradicted by history, but it's really contradicted by common sense. The biggest concern after the shooting was that the FBI investigated Amar Mateen in 2013 and closed that investigation. How do we explain that? I've often said when uh, when you become an FBI agent, the government gives you a badge and a gun, but they don't give you a crystal ball. So the idea that, that uh, an FBI agent interviewing Omar Mateen in, in uh, 2013 would be able to anticipate what what he would do in 2016. I don't think Omar Mateen could have predicted that. The, you know, the problem is that the FBI they place a lot of emphasis on uh, ideology and and what websites you went to and and what you read, rather than focusing on a history of violence. He claimed the mass shooting in the name of the Islamic State and several other organizations. Can you speak to right. the holes in that? Right. So, so uh, you know, if you look at Omar Mateen, he mentioned a number of different groups uh, that clearly are in conflict with one another. Al-Qaeda, Hezbollah, uh, even mentioning the Sarnaevs, who were Chechens and apparently interested in the conflict against Russia in, in Chechnya. So, you know, there, there wasn't a clear picture that he understood the distinctions between these various groups and, and their ideologies, which is particularly ironic given that in Iraq and Syria, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, and Hezbollah are actually killing one another. So it, it certainly doesn't reflect a deep uh, uh, involvement with the ideology, but rather just a flag he wanted to wave to ensure that his... Uh, act was going to receive maximum attention from the media. It seems like everybody, including the, the FBI and, and uh, other government agencies, are looking for a simple solution. So as soon as a perpetrator mentions ISIS, that's the end of the question for them. That's clear, okay, this is ISIS, rather than acknowledging that this person had no real connection to any real terrorist group. And if you're if you wanted to make sure that your attack was going to be highly publicized in the aftermath, what would you say, <laughs> right? You, you wouldn't claim it on behalf of some local group nobody's heard of. You'd claim it on what is on the media every day as the boogeyman. You know, this is, this is the big threat that everyone in the United States government is, is afraid of, you know. German goes on to voice his qualms about the FBI and ends with one thing. What we've seen so many times in the past is that when there is a national security threat, some segment of society is treated as suspect and their security isn't brought into consideration, much less the security of people who are, are victims of violent crime on a regular basis that we need to make sure that we're recognizing that the security of every community in the United States adds up to national security. Now, gay rights activists argue that the radical Islamic terrorism motive does not focus on what they feel was a targeted hate crime against gays, lesbians, bisexuals, and transgender people. And that, they say, is also political. Orlando Commissioner Patty Sheehan is part of that community and active in it. 
He went into a gay club. He didn't go into, you know, any other club in this city. He, he, he was looking at other gay clubs, so clearly it was a hate crime to me. People who want to think it's a radical Islamic terrorism and, and go no further are people who don't want to examine their own heart and their own hatred towards the LGBTQ community. In March 2017, more than two dozen victims and their families filed a lawsuit against the people who they say are responsible for putting a gun in Omar Mateen's hands. His former employer, G4S. The private global security firm falsified psychological records for Mateen and 1,300 other employees. That got them gun permits. The shooting unearthed this information, which led to a hefty fine against the company by the Florida Department of Agriculture for $151,000, the largest in the state agency's history. The situation also unveiled more unanswered questions about Mateen's psychological state in the moments, months, and years before the shooting. There's accounts from his ex-wife, Satora Yusufi, who said he wasn't stable during their marriage. Here she is the day after the shooting at a press conference outside her home in Colorado. The audio is kind of hard to make out here, but she says it's going to take a while for her to process what's happened, and that it's hard to imagine someone she once was close to caused so many deaths, and that she's praying for everyone. One reporter asks, what was he like as a husband? In the beginning, he was a normal being that cared about family, loved to joke, loved to have fun. But then a few months after we were married, I saw his instability. I saw that he was bipolar and he would get mad out of nowhere. That's when I started worrying about my safety. And then after a few months, he started abusing me physically very often. And, uh, not allowing me to speak to my family, keeping me hostage from them. She goes on to reason that it was emotional instability and sickness that drove Mateen into Pulse, and that she's unaware of whether he was diagnosed for anything. Nayeli Chavez is a professor at the Chicago School of Professional Psychology. He may have had a mental illness when uh, perhaps undiagnosed, perhaps even receive adequate treatment. And so I think that's a, that's a really important piece. Now, I couldn't obtain any documentation supporting or denying that. But what we do have is evidence that Mateen had made threats to co-workers. But before then, he'd been harassed by them, his colleagues and superiors, for being Muslim. These are some of the statements from written testimony Mateen gave G4S during the FBI investigation in 2013, statements he said co-workers made to him. Muslims are similar to Jews and that they rate the system and monopolize. We need to kill all the Muslims because of the September 11th, 2001 terror attacks on the World Trade Center. You Muslims are the only people who blow themselves up and sing Allahu Akbar and think you'll get paradise for that. You guys had your Arab Spring and now it's time for our redneck spring. And the list goes on. Arabs sleeping with goats, riding magic carpets, being specialists of making bombs, in one testimony, a co-worker claimed Mateen looked like a man he'd shot while in the military in Iraq. According to Mateen, the harassment dates back to when he first started at G4S in 2011. In an email, G4S told me it deferred its investigation of workplace harassment to the St. Lucie County Sheriff's Office, its customer, where Mateen worked, since employees there were allegedly involved. In an email response, the Sheriff's Office told me it did not look into Mateen's complaints. 
The FBI dismissed the investigation against Mateen for threats he made as a sort of tit-for-tat situation between him and his co-workers. But the insults continued. Hector Adames is a professor at the Chicago School of Professional Psychology. He describes these insults as microaggressions or paper cuts. So one paper cut might not truly impact the person so much, although it might sting when you got the paper cut. Um, so the idea behind microaggression is that um, people who are historically oppressed, they receive these um, multiple, multiple and hundreds of little paper cuts throughout their life. And that kind of impacts their, um, you know, their level of stress. So imagine having billions of paper cuts all over your body. Professors Adames and Chavez say these paper cuts are symptoms of social disease. Okay, all right. And so what are some examples of social disease that um, spread? And so some examples could include racism, sexism, homophobia, xenophobia, Islamophobia. So basically any condition that causes oppression and leads to uh, symptoms of distress for the, for the individuals. Is it possible for someone to have so many paper cuts that one day they just flip? You know, when we look at individual reactions to systemic oppression, absolutely, I think, but there has to be the perfect set of conditions, and maybe those set of conditions were present with Mateen. So, it, but it's, it's the oppression, but then there is a lack of uh, what we call in psychology protective factors. So, like a strong um, family that provides support, a community that provides support, a healthy and strong racial and ethnic identity, um, a, a, you know, a strong religious or spiritual faith. So I, I think as individuals, all of us can behave aggressively given the right amount of conditions. And when we think about Mateen, Dr. Alamis and I are looking at Mateen as a member of a family, as a member of a community in a country that has rejected the, uh, the Muslim community for so long. And, and in recent years, so publicly and so forcefully. There are many shades to Mateen, and the last one, the most unsubstantiated, is his sexuality. The Orlando massacre shooter led a startling secret life and may have been a closet. Univision interviewed a man who claims he had a two-month sexual relationship with Omar Mateen. In this exclusive interview with Univision shortly after the shooting, one man claims he was Mateen's lover. Others say he visited Pulse from time to time. Orlando Commissioner Patty Sheehan. I don't think you could have that level of hatred and and hanging around a bar, and there's there got to be something conflicting there to me. Um, it's just not, you know, people say they'd seen him there before and different things, so clearly he had issues. For Ani Zanaveld of Muslims for Progressive Values, an advocacy group, this could be the case, a sort of internal conflict, because gay Muslims do exist, after all, and many are stigmatized by stricter forms of Islam. The lack of diversity of what a Muslim looks and sounds like in America has a lot to do with the media and how the progressive Muslim voices, the LGBT Muslim voices have been censored out of the narrative. We're left here with many unanswered questions. 
What's for certain is that Omar Mateen was a man in conflict in a society filled with conflicting ideas. Omar. Maybe that's the takeaway. Omar, you got to talk to me. Omar. Find more of our Pulse coverage at our website, WMFE.org. Thank you to local artist Ishmael Perez for the music. It's his piano interpretation of the song Love Make the World Go Round by Jennifer Lopez and Lin Manuel Miranda. I'm Renata Sago. This is Life After Pulse.